Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. Each week, we interview the best and brightest in physical therapy, wellness, and entrepreneurship. We give you cutting-edge information you need to live your best life, healthy, wealthy, and smart. The information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be used as personalized medical advice. And now, here's your host, Dr. Karen Litzy. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. We have a great episode for you today. Um, but before we get to that, I want to thank you all for subscribing and downloading. And if you have a chance, definitely head over to iTunes and give us a rating because my friends and family can only do so much. Um, so today's episode it is so good. I mean, obviously, the guest, Professor Laura Mosley, how could you go wrong, right? For those of you who aren't familiar, uh, Professor Laura Mosley is a clinical scientist investigating pain in humans. After posts at the University of Oxford in the UK and the University of Sydney, Lorimer was appointed Foundation Professor of Neuroscience and Chair in Physiotherapy, the Sansom Institute for Health Research at the University of South Australia. He is also Senior Principal Research Fellow at Neura and an NHMRC Principal Research Fellow. He has published over 200 papers, four books, and numerous book chapters. He has given over 140 keynote or invited presentations at interdisciplinary meetings in 30 countries and has provided professional education in pain sciences to over 10,000 medical and health practitioners, and that continues to grow, and public lectures to as many. His YouTube and TEDx talks have been viewed well over 200,000 times. He consults to governmental and industry bodies in Europe and North America on pain-related issues. He was awarded the inaugural uh, Ulf Lindblom Award for the Outstanding Mid-Career Clinical Scientist Working in a Pain-Related Field by the International Association for the Study of Pain, was shortlisted for the 2011 and 2012 Australian Science Minister's Prize for Life Sciences and won the 2013 Marshall and Warren Award from the NHMRC for the best innovative and potentially transformative project. He was made Fellow of the Australian College of Physiotherapists in 2011 by original contribution and an honored member of the Australian Physiotherapy Association, their highest honor, and that happened in 2014. And he's also a wonderful human being, generous with his knowledge and with his time. In today's episode, we talk about the pain revolution which was an amazing ride they did from uh, a group of researchers, Lorimer included, and, uh, and friends, and they rode from Melbourne to Adelaide. And it was just really there to create public discourse about persistent pain. He, Lorimer talks all about it, so I'm not going to go into more detail because he can talk about it much in a much more animated and better way than I can. Um, we also discuss misconceptions surrounding the biopsychosocial model and pain, confronting medical providers who promote negative pain beliefs. Is there merit in using placebo treatments for chronic pain? And how does Lorimer stay critical of his own scientific work, work and stay motivated? And, you know, we did talk about the biopsychosocial model uh, versus the biomedical model. And although the models differ in many ways, there are many opportunities to share insights and practitioners of both frameworks should be self-critical. So this is Lorimer's advice. Quote, it's tempting for us to cast character judgments on those who are not like us. 
Actually, I think that people are trying to help their patients a lot of the time. They're good people. I really think we need to collaborate and just keep open the possibility that we're wrong. We have to be committed to try and prove ourselves wrong. Spoken like a true researcher. So listen, we've got, if you are in the middle of your commute, if you go to podcast.healthywealthysmart.com and go to the show notes for today's show, we've got links to the Pain Revolution, the Facebook page, Explain Pain Supercharged, Body and Mind, Twitter, Body and Mind, uh, website, which you definitely have to check out. Lorimer and his team are doing exceptional, exceptional work. So without further ado, um, I give you Professor Lorimer Mosley. Hi, Lorimer. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so happy to have you. Thank you. It's great to be there. There, here. Um, Okay, so we have a lot of questions from a lot of different people. But before we get to a lot of those, what I really want to talk about is the Pain Revolution ride. So can Uh you give the listeners a little background on the ride and where you see it going in the future? Ah, lovely. I love talking about Pain Revolution because it was was just an amazing week and it, it still reverberates. But to answer your question... Uh, I guess the things that triggered Pain Revolution, there's a few things that together triggered it. Uh, There's the obvious things that people will not be surprised if they're familiar at all with the work that I do. Uh, The the size of the problem of persistent pain is is massive here in Australia. I know it it is also in North America. The world, you know, no one... uh, hopefully we'll be surprised to hear me say it's it's our most burdensome non-fatal condition facing our species so i think we you know we we need to take it on and in order to take it on i think people need to be aware of it and by people i don't mean clinicians uh, although they do need to be aware of it i mean punters and uh, and in australia that's a phrase for you know, the general public uh policy makers politicians business people uh, so one of our objectives of pain revolution was uh, one of the questions we were trying to answer was how do we effectively put this into everyone's consciousness, this issue of persistent pain. Uh, another of those triggers was that the problem is worse in rural areas and country areas, what we would call the bush. Uh, and the, the problem is worse both in terms of how many people are affected but also in terms of, of the impact on their lives. Uh, their access to care is much less. Their, the likelihood that their clinician uh, is up with the latest is less. The, the practical limitations of clinicians getting professional development is massive. Uh, so we thought, well, let's target the bush. Another of the triggers is that it, I found myself thinking in the last few years or last couple of years, uh, we've, we've learned a a massive amount about persistent pain in the last 20 years. We really have. I think it's easy as a scientist to, to think the world is always entirely questions. And what I love about being a scientist is the questions. I'm, a, I'm naturally an explorer, I think. But it struck me in a, in a few pivotal conversations, really, that we've got a lot of answers for things in the last 20 years. And, and we now know that there are there are interventions that reduce the likelihood of pain. There are interventions that uh, improve people's lives. So it, I found myself thinking, well, in in hopefully in American 
terminology, well, dang, we've got to go and do something. Let's go and do it. Uh, and I guess the final trigger for me personally was was observing what, what I see happening in Australia that I think is happening in the US uh, is, is this disconnect uh, and, and quite an unfriendly disconnect between, uh, you know, putting my fingers up as inverted commas, but between the intellectual city folk and uh, the rest. And I, I, that troubles me personally, um, that we forget that we're all on one team. And, and I think that's having serious ramifications for the planet at the moment, certainly for Western countries. So, and, and I, I, I really feel like I don't want this to happen in my country. And <laughs> so that was probably the fourth trigger. So we sat down, a few of us sat down and came up with, well, how can we do this in a way that satisfies our own trademarks as a research group? Uh, and those trademarks include communication, collaboration, excellence, integrity, all those sort of things. But another one is enjoyment. We, we are committed to enjoying what we do. I think that's a, a privilege in this time and place in history that I'm, I'm keen to, to exploit. So we came up with the idea of, of gathering people who have a vested interest in this, and that in the first instance, that would be pain scientists, clinicians, carers, ex-sufferers or sufferers, uh, and doing something fun. So we decided to ride our bikes from Melbourne to Adelaide. That's, uh, in your terminology, about 600 miles, maybe 550 miles over a week and stop at the towns on the way and deliver public engagement events, um, run seminars with health professionals, uh, workshops, demonstrations of what we do in a in experimental pain laboratory, uh, cool stuff that people have fun doing like illusions and Tasha Stanton and Dan Harvey, both outstanding young researchers, uh, well Tasha's really she's young but she's she's not a new researcher anymore uh ran a thing we called the brain bus uh, so that stopped in the shopping mall in the village green those sorts of places uh, and walkers by stopped and school groups came and it was a buzz and then the peloton uh, would turn up a few hours later uh, invariably i'd do a, a few radio interviews after 100 miles of riding in my legs, so they, they were sometimes not very coherent interviews. Uh, and then we would run a public open seminar, uh, which was really an a entertainment session based around pain, and then a health professional workshop. And through that, we developed contacts that we're now engaging with training and supporting as they become their local champions. Uh, and, and what we wanted to do is get awareness, so we did that via the riders. The riders had to raise money, so they tell all their friends. We had uh, a 1,000 individual donors of money. All the money we raise goes into supporting uh, the, the health professionals we engage with on the ground to become their local champions. So we're training them and we're uh, mentoring them and giving them resources along the way now. That's what we're doing now. Uh, and, and then we tried to get in the press and... Well, I think we did that really well in a, in, in a small population-wise small country uh, with not a lot of lead-up. Uh, you know, we had, I did 26 radio interviews. Uh, we were on a national television documentary on the national news. Uh, we accessed, you know, over a million people via different social media outlets. And I think it was an outrageous success. So to answer the next of your questions, how was it? It was amazing, Karen. It was amazing. It was a transformative experience for 
for many cyclists. And some of those stories are outstanding. You know, people who, uh, one, one person who hadn't ridden a bike at all in her life before last October decided this is a good thing to do and I want to help and learn to ride and trained and, and rode 580 miles in a week, crying at the end of every leg because she didn't think she'd make it. That's amazing. And another one whose his son had died of an opioid overdose and it was very powerful for, for him to spend that, that week with us. Uh, and then the transformative experiences for the clinicians in the countryside, in the bush, who every, every event I had at least one clinician in tears with gratitude of what we were doing. Uh, and then the general public. Uh, and the downside <laughs> of pain revolution is how much I personally have been swamped with emails and phone calls of, of people expressing those sorts of things and where can I go to learn more and uh, general practitioners ringing me up uh, a bit annoyed that their patients are starting to say, what do you know about the pain revolution? So I mean, that's, that's a great outcome in my view, really great outcome. Amazing. And I can't believe that was all in just one week. I mean, that yeah, sounds well, like what you would do in like a year, right? And you were able to yeah. do that in a week, which is amazing. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a lot of lead time. Uh, and we had, uh, at one stage, we had 51 people volunteering in one role or another. Uh, we had Tracy, who works with me, amazing, <laughs> organizing and putting people together. Uh, and then we had local champions. So I've actually been doing the background to this for 18 months, chatting to people in the bush and when I can see that spark in their eye or in their voice, hear it in their voice, I say, do you want to get involved? So we had a local champion at each town um, and they recruited people. I mean, one of the country towns, they had to take walls out of the theatre. So we ran it in the local theatre. They had to remove walls to fit everyone in. And we had people outside watching TV screens. It, it was it was wild. That's yeah. great. And, and are you going to do it again next year? Yeah. Yeah, so we're already locked in for next year uh, in April, and we are riding next year. We're riding from Sydney to a town called Albury, which is quite close to Melbourne, uh, and we're riding through the Australian Snowy Mountains. So uh, we can say we're going over the top. We're going on the from sea level to the highest road in Australia, which you guys will think is quite funny. At about it's about ten thousand feet, I think. That's a lot. That's 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 a big. That's a mountain. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, that's over a few days to get there. But uh, that's you know we've locked in those locations. We're now starting that same process that we did before. Uh, I've been contacted by several people wanting to do it where they live, uh, and I'm stoked about that idea. I have no sense of ownership of Pain Revolution, uh, and if we can get some sort of concerted thing i think it's a great concept you know the play on words the community that you access because as as people you know in australia anyway the the people most likely to want to do the ride a week of riding fully supported accommodation meals professional cyclists at the front bike maintenance you know it was amazing karen you, you get up in the morning get out of your hotel room now these hotels are not very posh because they're in the bush get out of your hotel room and your bike is sparkling at the door ready for you like a trusty steed it was amazing but this community of people are a community who are more likely to be pretty connected uh less likely to be familiar with the issue 
but once they understand, they will generate their own uh, dissemination pathways, really. Yeah, so I think it's a great great concept. It's a nice little play on words. and Nice. And it is a revolution. It's truly a revolution. You know, we, we, it's time to think differently. There's a new sense of possible, you know. It's great. Yeah, absolutely. And like you said, the we've learned so much over the past 20 years about persistent pain and pain in general. And I think now we'll kind of get into a little bit more. We're going to move away from the pain revolution. But if people want to learn more about it, they can just go to the show notes for this episode and we'll have links to the Facebook page and things like that. So people can, can learn more about it. Um, But now we have a lot of questions from people. And like I said, I'm not going to ask everybody's questions because we'd be here for like 10 hours and that is just way too much time. But um, we'll sort of talk about, I think, maybe some, some myths or some misconceptions about what the biopsychosocial model of care is and what pain is and how we can uh, explain that to our patients. Um, so I think one concept that I know I hear a lot, and sometimes I've heard it from patients, which probably means I was doing it wrong, but, um, and that is if pain is in the brain, can we just think it away? And can we just talk it away? Yeah, that's a really, that's, uh, I think that's, I agree. I, I mean, I've heard this as well, and, and I don't think, just as a little personal encouragement for you, Karen, I don't think hearing that from our patients can make us think we're doing a, a worse job than most. Um, because we're all trying, we're all learning a new way of thinking, really, I guess. But um, I, my response to that question, the first part of any question, I, th- I always think, okay, so what is this question about, uh, and uh, what what position does it come from? And the, even the wording of that question uh, make you know, sends a slight alarm to me, and that is that if pain is in the brain, uh, which it's not. Right. This is a, this is probably the most common misconception of of what I do, and and I I haven't gone back to I never go back and look at things that that I've done like in interviews and stuff like that or listen to them. But I look at my writings, and I've used that phrase. I haven't for a while, but I've definitely used that phrase that that pain is in the brain. Um, but I don't like that phrase certainly now, and I feel like I've uh, that's a few years now because it implies uh, it, it, deal- it, it illegitimizes the feeling itself. You feel it in your body. It's pain. I believe pain is in the body. I really do. Uh, but it's projected there by your brain, if you like. The, and everything we experience, and this is where we probably cross the line for conceptually for explaining stuff to patients. I think um, you know, everything we experience is a is a construction, is a is a prediction on what's most likely to help you. Everything, right? What we see, what we smell, what we remember, uh, and pain is included in that. So, you know, vision, the the visual image of of me in front of you, uh, we wouldn't say that's in your brain. You know, I'm not in your brain. Uh, but actually, you're constructing your brain is constructing me and positioning me onto where the the visual input seems to be arising from. So on the screen, 
Uh, and I think pain's the same. I mean, our body is the target. Usually, sometimes we feel it in a part that's not our body, but it would reasonably be our body if things went to plan. For example, phantom limb pain, uh, or outside of an experimental context. You know, in our experiments, we can get people to hurt outside of their body or in someone else's body. Uh, and I would still argue the pain is there, but the brain is constructing it as being there. Uh, because space is always like that. Anyway, that's a big introduction to the answer to the question. Um, the, I guess the real practical part of that question was, can we think it away or talk it away? And my answer to that would, would be almost certainly not. Uh, but I always feel compelled to explain an answer to a question like that. And the way that I understand the brain, and I'm not, a, I'm not the truth sheriff, by any means, you know, they're, they're very clever people trying to understand how consciousness works and how the brain works. And the, the best grasp that I can get on it is to think about it almost like a jungle in an evolutionary system. And one of the, and, and it's all about influences. And you know, in Explain Pain Supercharge, this book I've done with David, we talk about neurotags having influence and collaborating for influence, just like things do in the jungle. And then over you know, a persistent amount of time, the bacteria start to collaborate with the, with the, uh, the, the, the organic tissue, which collaborates with plants. You know, these sorts of things happen. And I think I like thinking about that in the brain as well. And one influence may very well be the, uh, the volitional rehearsal of our thoughts or uh, sayings. So I think those things can have influence. So I would always say to people, you know, let's say a patient, this happened just last week for me, a patient who spent the whole time saying, well, I've got a dodgy back. I, I accept that I have a dodgy back. Uh, and I, one of the many things that I suggested to him and his wife was don't say that. Uh, because if you say it, that's a little influence. Now that may be a small influence, but it's part of a really big package. Uh, and uh, the things you say, the things you hear, the things you sense, I think all are, uh, have some influence. But can you think it away? Uh, it, it, to me, that's a little bit like suggesting that the one uh, very complex organism do two completely opposing things at the same time. Because the organism is producing pain because that's, that's predicted to be the best way to promote your survival. That's how I would conceptualize it. And at the same time, trying to say, don't produce pain. Uh, and I feel like that's a, that's a clash uh, of it being torn in two directions. So that's why I'm far more comfortable with uh, try to understand pain. And if, if we really understand pain and, and understand our own pain, then I think we've got a better chance of the brain outside of our consciousness, all that massive amount of stuff that underpins consciousness, having different influences and, and predicting that actually it's probably in my interest to have less pain. Uh, so I don't know if that, if that makes sense. The, the short answer is uh, it's a skill. The, using conscious, like volitional things to moderate lower systems is a skill in my view and there are monks who spend 25 years practicing the use of volitional thoughts 
and behaviours to modulate heart rate, blood pressure in real time. We know this can happen. Mm-hmm. To uh, there are people who can contextually conjure what it takes to not experience pain in association with tissue injury. There are some people who can quickly, under the power of hypnotic suggestion, get into a state where the brain decides not to produce pain. I think all those things are possible, but if the question was, in in a normal, typical person, or in the vast, vast majority of people, in the vast, vast majority of situations, can you think it away, I would say, if you had long enough, if you had a few centuries of life, I think you could learn how to do that. But not in our lifetime. I think that the best way to do it is to understand uh, and not rely on conscious processes to turn it off or down at a particular time. It's a great skill to learn. If you've got time to learn that, great. Go and join a, a monastery and dedicate full time to learning that skill. But most of us have to work or look after the mm-hmm. kids. Mm-hmm. Have, a, have a life outside life. of, yeah. And, mm. and you know, it's what that kind of brought to my head is that concept of pain and suffering because, you know, we hear that all the time. You know, it's kind yeah. of a common phrase of pain and suffering. And my question is, is, can you have, do they have to go together? Can you have pain but no suffering? And can you have suffering but no pain? Um, and I think, in my opinion, sort of that pain, like you said, there's so much unconscious influence to what happens in, in pain. And, and when I read uh, Explain Pain Supercharged, you really certainly get a sense of that, that a lot of this is unconscious, a lot of these systems happening within the body. And is suffering more of a conscious issue or is that also subconscious as well? And I don't know the answer to that, but I know that after reading Explain Pain Supercharged, I was like, okay, the big, one of my big takeaways is pain is super complicated and there's yeah. so much more to learn and a lot, the vast majority of it is not under our control because yeah. it's so subconscious. So where does suffering fit into that? Because you can yeah. certainly have pain. If you're not suffering, then who cares? <laughs> yeah. Oh, they, they're fantastic cab sav conversations. And it's, <laughs> it's 9am here. So I've been breaking a few rules with that, but um, beautiful questions. I, I, and, and I don't, I don't claim to have authority in this space at all. So I'll, I'll just sort of, tell you what I think. And I, and I, I think about these things a lot. Uh, I wonder a lot about these things. And we try and devise experiments to help that wondering. Um, I would say, uh, I think they are separate. I think you can definitely have suffering without pain. Uh, in my view, absolutely. Um, pain for me is the, is the version of a negative, an unpleasant consciousness that's centered on a location and and therefore will promote protection of that location uh fear i would describe as suffering um in that same sort of way but it's just not centered on a location um thirst you can suffer grief loneliness you know all those sorts of things i think i would put under suffering Mm -hmm. Uh, the the first part of the question was can you have pain without suffering uh, and I find this more difficult to answer, and I'm very conscious of a 40-year history, mainly driven by the psychological 
people, theorists and clinicians, uh, and born out of the behavioural, the, the, the amazing behavioural work of Bill Fordyce and some of his contemporaries, uh, which is along the lines of, or is captured by this mantra that, that I've, I've never really bought into since I was a student, and that is uh, the idea that pain is unavoidable. So this is with, res uh, with reference to persistent pain. In persistent pain, the pain is unavoidable and untouchable. The suffering is optional, or we can teach people to suffer less. And there's been some beautiful and uh, really transformative work in that field uh, along the basis of that phrase, you know, that you can't touch pain. And the justification for that is because we've got evidence now that the, the neuroimmune system and we would have said the nervous system until recently, sensitizes. Uh, however, I just don't believe the phrase, uh, the first part of the phrase, that pain is unavoidable because everyone in persistent pain has moments varying from instants to weeks where they are completely pain-free. Or years. But they're nervous. Or years, yeah. Or the, but their nervous system hasn't desensitized in that time. Mm -hmm. And an example, an example of that might be, well, you've got horrible, horrible, persistent back pain. You're totally disabled by it, let's say. Uh, and when the doorbell rings, for that instant, when you, you hear the doorbell and alerted to it, you don't have back pain at that instant. Right? Maybe two seconds later, your back pain comes back. Uh, but that tells me the pain is not unavoidable. The brain is producing the pain and we should be able to influence that. And now the data after the last 20 years is showing us quite clearly empirically that phrase, the first part of the phrase doesn't fit. Second part of the phrase is, is implying that we should concentrate on suffering. And I think there's pretty strong data that a successful pain management, and I'd say that with a different tone because I, I want to emphasize course uh, programs or interventions that that say we're not going to change your pain we're going to give you skills to manage your pain and have a meaningful life despite your pain uh, and act except mm -hmm. in therapy mm -hmm. sort of mm -hmm. is a is a modern manifestation of that that perspective I think the I think there's very good evidence that people and when they learn these strategies, that their pain has a smaller impact on their life, and they they suffer less. They would reduce their rating of suffering. the The other side of that, for me, is that's great, but I think it's half of our capacity uh, and half of our agenda. And we've done a lot of work asking patients uh, when it's when it's face to face, and you ask patients, "What do you what do you want?" And it's face to face at the end of a pain management program, for example, they say the things that the literature tells us they should, like, oh, my pain is no different, but I'm, I'm feeling a lot better about how to manage it and I'm suffering less. If you make that anonymous, so we also do anonymous things where the patient has no, the, the patient has every confidence that their response will not get back to their clinician, then they say the biggest thing on their mind, I just want to get rid of the pain. I want to relieve the pain. So I'm not convinced that this distinction between pain and suffering is not a response bias driven thing. I'm not convinced of that yet. And our, 
that would sound heretical to some of the really important cognitive behavioral pain people who I really respect. Uh, and I'm not arguing that oh, it's definitely like that, but I'm certainly not convinced yet that in when, when push comes to shove, in the raw moment, you ask a patient with persistent pain or anyone in pain, what do you want most right now? I think most of them would say pain relief. Yeah, and yeah. coming from someone who's had eight years of persistent pain, not not really anymore, but who's had those eight years of persistent pain, and that's when I met Dave, um, yeah, the f one thing I would want is to wake up without pain. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I think what happened is I learned more about uh, the neuro, well, this was many years ago, but I guess we'll say the neuroimmune system. Um, yeah. That was what helped me the most in my pain decreasing. Yeah. But I did still have the pain, but I could say I wasn't suffering as much because I knew that I wasn't damaging myself every time I had a flare-up, every time I had yeah. more pain, or that I wasn't damaged goods to begin with. And I think for me, that was a big cognitive and conscious shift that helped to decrease the suffering because you stop blaming yourself for it and I think that's a big component yeah, yeah absolutely and and I would definitely say that uh, there are cont contributions to suffering that are not not just pain they're about what the pain means mm -hmm. and you know yeah. exactly exactly what you've captured beautifully there Karen yeah. and I completely concur with that and and I think now we have empirical data building to say to to mirror your experience that when people really understand, uh, yeah, then their suffering reduces. But but we also know, and so does their pain mm -hmm. over time. Yeah. Over time. So I'll yeah. never say to, to patients, okay, you'll get pain relief, easy peasy with this. <laughs> but I do say, look, we now know there's two there's two reasons that I would say your pain will slowly reduce over time, but it will take a long time. One is we know enough about biology to know that should happen. And the other is we have enough data from other people in your situation that shows that this does happen if you stick at it. Yeah, and it takes time for sure. Yeah, I think absolutely. oftentimes people want, and we know this because we see you see it all over advertising is do this exercise, take this pill, wear this weird thing, do this weird movement and your back pain <laughs> will be gone forever. And we know that's just not how it works. Yeah. Um, that it does take time and you just have to do the work and be in it. Um, now, earlier you had said you had a patient and, and caregiver who kept saying dodgy back, dodgy back. And this yeah. is a question that comes up a, a lot and that is how, how do you or have you confronted other healthcare professionals who do say things to their patients who then become your patients that you have the back of an 80-year-old and your spine is crumbling and, you know, you're, boy, yeah. I can't believe you walk around on those hips. How do you even do that? Um, yeah. Because that obviously increases a lot of anxiety to the patient. And then they come to see, let's say they come to see us as a physiotherapist and we have to try and chip away at some of that. So have you ever had the conversation with, whether it be the physician or other physio or what have yeah. you and how does that how do you approach that situation uh it's a, that's a great question and uh i've had i imagine thousands of those conversations 
And I imagine that my strategy has changed over that time. And I hope that I'm more effective communicator in that space than I was when I started. Uh, so I've had a lot of practice. Um, and I guess I, I think I really understand why people say these things, uh, particularly if your model of training uh, and thinking is a structural pathology model. I really understand that people, if, if you think that what you say can't affect pain because pain is a, is an injury thing, then you wouldn't worry about saying that. And the, the, the other side of that, of that coin or the other aspect to that, I think is that a lot of health professionals, nearly all health professionals, I think have a natural tendency and a very slick skill set of legitimizing someone's suffering. And, uh, and that's a great way to do it. You know, Jeep is, it was a mess in there and, you know, surgical, that's the common thing. So, oh, you were a mess in there. And that serves a lot of purposes. It says to the patient, so, I can understand you are hurting so much. You know, so it's sort of like a validation. It's also a validation of themselves. Uh, and it, so if things turn out well, I've done an amazing job. You know, so and, and George Engel wrote some beautiful things on this sort of stuff in the 60s, uh, which we refer to again in, uh, in that book with Dave. But um, I really understand it. But the conversations that I have with these people, I, I try to always have those conversations from that perspective of, of wanting to understand and then in my visual metaphor of it and I think in this way a lot um, I want to sit down alongside that physician or surgeon or anaesthetist or or physical therapist uh, understand why they say that and then suggest a new way once I'm there with them and the sort of things that I would be suggesting would be so do you, do you think that's right do you think that that their, their hips are 50 years older than the rest of their body? And the answer will always be no, 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 but it's it's pretty degenerated. And I say, so what is that degeneration? Is that, is that you know, an adaptation to different loading patterns or something like that? And I'll, I'll, often the answer will be yes. And then I will say, this really interests me as a clinician, as a pain scientist, because, because we now know that thinking those things, thinking you've got... 85 year old hips makes your hips hurt more uh, and the the amazing and I think slightly uh, slightly worrying thing could be that actually we now know that thinking that a lot makes your hips worse structurally we've got mechanisms now by which those sort of things can happen uh, so for you know for the, you know, we're talking about Martha here, this patient we've both seen. So, you know, I'm, I'm really encouraging Martha to, to focus on the good aspects of that, that her body's been able to adapt and get stronger. Uh, and and I've said to her, don't say you've got 80-year-old hips. And the reason I've said that to her is because I know that that's making her pain worse. And and it would be great if you were in a position to back that up. That, that'd be great for me because I know that Martha really trusts you and respects you. Um. And that could be really powerful input because I think that a real driver of Martha's situation at the moment is just how worried she is about the structure of her hips. And actually, her hips are not going to crumble. They're, we know that. And I'm just hoping for nods from the other clinician. Uh, and if we're not talking about particular patients, uh, I think that it's hard for me to answer that 
question from the perspective of, of the person who probably wrote it. Sure. Because sure. I'm now I'm now almost immediately credible in in the eyes of my audience, uh, which is a function of I guess you know, what I do for a job mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, and I don't want to ever presume that that's not a really privileged position to have and I feel a quite a strong sense of responsibility to that credibility if you like um so maybe one answer to that person would be well if the people are still saying that then people like me uh, still have a lot of work to do in that broader space yeah so you wouldn't go and say you don't know who i am (laughs) (laughs) you wouldn't you wouldn't lead off with that one (laughs) yeah no i would only ever say that you know in in my dark house if my son says who is it I'd probably say, you don't know who I am? Uh, no, though, what a horrible phrase. Yeah, I hope that, I've that never said that. I hope terrible. I never said that. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> that, would be, that would be the wrong way to start. So well, I think so. your advice on, and I think that's, that's a nice little narrative that people can take some nuggets from there and kind of put themselves into that space with the clinician that, that they're talking to. So I thought that was really good. No, I, you, I don't think you'd ever say, uh, <laughs> hello. <laughs> I um I mean to su- summarize that I do think that it's tempting for us you know for the revolutionaries the people who feel like we're really biopsychosocialists um it's tempting for us to cast character judgments on those who are not like us and actually I think that people are trying to help their patients a lot of the time <laughs> they they're good people uh and I think we need to, I really think we need to cooperate and collaborate and and just keep open the possibility that we're wrong. Uh, I mean, in my view, I think, and this, this is a really interesting thing for any scientist, we have to be committed to trying to prove ourselves wrong. That's, yes. You know, not only being open to the possibility we are, just try and prove to ourselves that we are wrong. Yeah. That's, isn't that the basis of forming a hypothesis and testing said hypothesis? You yeah. know, you're sort of looking to contradict your hypothesis. Yeah, you are. Yeah, you should always, in in theory at least, Yeah, in you theory. should always plan your experiments uh, to have the absolute top chance of proving yourself wrong, proving right. your idea wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, a lot of this research, obviously a robust amount of research on pain and how we treat our patients with persistent pain and acute pain as well. I don't think, I don't want to leave out the people who have acute pain sure. because the education on pain is, is really great for those people as well. But do you feel like you can translate that literature to other chronic or persistent conditions, whether it be something like COPD or persistent dizziness, yep. uh, chronic fatigue, things like that? Is there, is that too far of a stretch or, or can we... Can we do that? Yeah, great question. I don't think it's a stretch at all. Uh, in fact, uh, I'm involved in work that is doing that uh, with dyspnea, with shortness of breath, uh, anxiety, depression, fear, phobia. Um, persistent dizziness, I feel reasonably naive to. Um, so I'd, I'd, I'd look to someone else to answer that question. But um, I, insofar as I would conceptualise pain as a protective conscious feeling, then I think we should be able to apply the same principles uh, to any other conscious protective feeling. And actually, we know people are doing this. So uh, 
I've heard from people who have got the protectometer, explain pain handbook protectometer, and got their patient to just go through and cross out pain wherever they see it and write uh, fatigue. And that's that's how they run their program, the fatigometer. Perfect. Uh, and yeah, and and we don't have randomized controlled trials, but but we do have anecdotal data and the randomized controlled trials in those spaces in fatigue, phobia, uh, are, are mirroring the journey of pain. And if I had two lives, uh, I'd probably add fatigue mm-hmm. or something like that. It's very mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah, no, it is very interesting. And, and so I think it sounds like if you have that patient population, the answer would be to try it. Yeah, well... To, to yeah, kind of take always, some of that research. Yeah, I'm always a, a slightly self-conscious about that. I think that that uh, try it within within a structure and accountability mm-hmm. that you're averse to risk. Uh, we can't do harm. Do no harm is the primary thing. Of and course. harm is not always immediate, I think. The number of patients I've seen in the last year who I think have been harmed by well-meaning clinicians giving catastrophic pathological models for their pain, but the harm comes out six months later. Mm. Uh, We have to be careful about that and have a community around us who keep us accountable, I think. And and that actually leads nicely into the next question I was going to ask, and that is what is, in your opinion, the ideal structure of a multidisciplinary pain team, pain management, if you will? I hate saying management. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's got to be a better word, right? What's a better word? Well, pain yeah, treatment I, team? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say conceptually for me, rehab makes more sense. Yeah. Rehabilitation. Yeah. So um, we would say pain rehab or, okay. or pain, pain revolution is now uh, something that's coming on. But uh, I, I don't think I could answer that with a set structure. I think it's very contextually uh, and culturally mm-hmm. influenced. Uh, you know, in the places I've been to in the bush, there might only be one health professional in town who who has any interest or understanding. So the the makeup of that multidisciplinary team would be one person with as many hats as they could wear. Uh, but also there are, I think there are contexts in which hospitals are the best place for a multidisciplinary pain program. Uh, and there are contexts in which you don't want your patient going near a hospital. You know, so there's all those sort of logistic, mm-hmm. geographical, financial skill set uh, features of the learner is how we would phrase it now. You know, the patient, uh, the skill set and features of the people delivering care, all that sort of stuff. So I, I couldn't, I couldn't answer that. I, I audit seven data from seven different centres on explained pain type stuff and grad motor imagery, and those centres range from what I would say a corner shop PT, sole practitioner, to multidisciplinary program. Uh, and the outcomes of those groups are pretty similar. That's interesting. That's good to know. Yeah, and, and you know, that's contextually specific. I'm not mm-hmm. I'm not saying mm-hmm. so don't worry about multidisciplinary care. No, no, what yeah. I'm saying is you've got to play to your strengths and your possibilities, I would say. Yeah, so it's kind of sounds like it obviously dependent on the patient. And the resources you have available and what yeah. that patient needs given the resources that you have. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah. yeah. And and what resources resources you as a clinician can get yourself. Right, 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that all makes a lot of sense. Okay. So we have time for a couple more questions, but one that I think is really interesting and, and I'll, I'll have you give like it the, the short answer. Cause I know the long answer is super duper duper long for this. Even I know that, but, and that is, um, is there merit to treating patients with chronic pain using placebos? Meaning, I know it's a, it's one of those yeah. questions that can go yeah. on. The answer could be, can be very long. Um, so is it unethical for physical therapists to use a treatment that isn't supported by research at all if uh, to decrease the patient's experience of pain? I mean, where does the, pla yeah. the placebo stand in that? And I know it's a big, cool. vague question. Yeah, it's a great question. I've, I, I love these sort of things to think about. Mm -hmm. uh, and to start off with that, I would, I would say I don't think there is such thing as a placebo effect. Uh, I think that the notion is nonsensical that something that is inert can have an effect uh, because inert means it has no effect. So um, what I would say is that we clump a whole lot of effects under the banner of placebo. Uh, and as we learn more about what those contributions are, the apparent size of the placebo effect gets smaller because it doesn't now include expectation or it doesn't include conditioning, or it doesn't include uh, rapport, therapeutic alliance. And slowly and slowly, and perhaps one day, there'll be nothing left to attribute to that sort of nebulous, mysterious thing. But in the spirit of the question, uh, I I think that, that there are very few, if any, PT treatments where there is a lot of research to say it has no effect. Uh, oh, and, and what I think the research does say is that the effect that it seems to have is not mediated by the mechanisms we thought it was mediated by. Uh, and a classic example of that might be uh, types of manual therapy where uh, we've presumed that initially we presumed it's because the joint is, is having biomechanical uh, activities that return movement to normal. Uh, and then we learned, well, hang on, maybe it's about the receptors in the in the joints that are having an effect at the dorsal horn. Then we learned, well, hang on, it doesn't matter if you do it to the next joint. So maybe it's uh, uh, an endorphin-related effect. Uh, and then we might learn, actually, maybe it's a few of those things put together, but maybe it's just powerful safety cues in the context of, of movement. So... The RCTs, if they're designed well, will sh will probably reveal that uh, it's not what we thought it was that's having the effect. I think the more important question is, uh, or the more important issue is, when we have research to show that a treatment is is potentially harmful, uh, then we I don't think we should use it. And that brings me back to my other point that I think a lot of the ways that we pitch a treatment to patients. If we know we're lying about that, uh, I absolutely think we should not do that. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm quite, quite of the view that for me, actively lying about how treatment's working uh, is not a good thing to do. I, um, I, I would agree with that. Yeah, so, so I think, should we do it? So one example might be the ultrasound machine, <laughs> or as David would call the ultra bullshit machine. <laughs> uh, 
you know, should we use ultrasound on a patient if we know the sound waves going into the tissues are completely inert? Uh, my response to that would be, well, we need to understand the features of the patient, the context, what their expectations are, but not imply or state that those sound waves are not inert if we know they are. Mm-hmm. It shows they are. We might say, look, this does nothing at your tissue level, but a lot of people find it relieving. Do you? Yeah, I do. Well, I'm happy to do that. And then let's talk through while I'm doing that the power that, that is being uh, implemented inside your body that's got nothing to do with sound waves. It's something else. Would you like to know more about that? That would be my sort of phrasing. For mm-hmm. Because oftentimes, yeah. can it be the pageantry, if you will, of the selected treatment that people think, well, that's what's it, that's part of the placebo effect, and so it's helping the patient improve because of whatever it is you're doing to the patient. You know, like I said, that yeah. pageantry or that spectacle of the treatment, whether that be... Uh, an ultrasound or or other various treatments that uh, a physio can use. So is that not helpful to the patient then? Is that a, is that a placebo? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think we would call it that. I love mm-hmm. that phrasing of pageantry. And uh, the the person who's mediating the pageantry may well say, and I've heard this so many times. Well, I know the randomized controlled trials don't show it works, but my patients, it works. I know it. And and I think, yeah, the, the pageantry, that's that's great. I think that something in there is is an objective that I don't resonate with very strongly, and that is, uh, does it help the patient? I, I resonate more, more strongly with, does what I'm doing give the patient resources to master their situation, to recover and to grow? Uh, and when we ask that question, things are a bit different. Mm-hmm. You know, does that pageantry provide the patient with resources to manage themselves without needing us? Probably not. It just convinces the patient you're going to need us every time your your brain tries to protect you. And I think that's a bad outcome. Yeah. No, I think that's a a great way to look at it. Okay. How do you keep yourself sharp and how do you stay critical of your own work? Wow. Uh, I love the first question because it implies that I am sharp. Um, (laughs) I mean, I'm not totally convinced of that. Uh, I think that that one thing that works in my favour in in that way is that I I'm an explorer. I, I I really want to understand things, and the the things that I'm most I'm most driven to understand are people, uh, and that's you know in a lot of contexts. So I think I I, <laughs> I don't understand so much that staying sharp. Is, is probably more about just still having the curiosity. Um, I associate myself with people who I see as cortical prostheses. Uh, I, don't, I don't have a very competent, necessarily competent set of neurons myself, but I, I feel like people help in that. And uh, I guess, and, you know, to be really honest uh, about it, I... Uh, I, I, f- I feel very grateful to be clever um, and that's just a fluke uh, and I I really enjoy trying to I guess trying to keep that going so um, I have no sense of uh, of knowing everything or 
yeah, man, I have <laughs> I have the opposite sometimes. Well, well, often, often, most days I'd probably think, oh, shit, I don't understand that. Uh, and how is it that everyone else seems to understand that so well? And, and yeah. Uh, and as to the second question, I think that's a just a fantastic question, whoever asked that, because it's it's really there are a lot of a lot of influences on someone like me that are saying you've got the answer. Uh, and what you say must be true and those sorts of things. And uh, I've I've responded to that for for my entire research career and I guess probably from my entire clinical career that uh, to put in place almost formalized systems of accountability. And that's where science is great because you, you're accountable to your peers. Uh, in our research, we, we always uh, decide what we're going to do in a study, what we're going to test statistically, how we're going to test it, and what criteria will accept things. And then we, we lock that protocol and we make that protocol publicly available. Now, it might not be released to the public then because we don't want people to go and do the study before we've done it, but it's untouchable. So we lock it and there are, there are websites that offer that service. Uh, and then when we do the study, we are always accountable to what we said we'd do. Uh, and that's a scientific practice that's highly recommended. It's uh, open science framework of, of replicability and transparency. But there's not many researchers who, who commit to that. And I think the reason they don't commit to it is that they might may not have the same sense that I have that my brain is under the influence of a lot of stuff. And a lot of that stuff is about my own survival and promotion. So I want to put in place mechanisms that will prevent those influences from changing my behavior too much. Uh, and then the other thing that that, that I, I feel like helps with keeping oneself accountable is is just to remember how minuscule we are in the scheme of things. Uh, and I have a much stronger sense of being accountable to to the relationships in my life and uh, and those relationships are at a very close level with my family and and friends. But I would see that I have a relationship with the physiotherapy community, with the pain science community, and I want that relationship to be honest and mutually beneficial and and respectful and caring. And I, I choose to believe in my relationships that people are, in inverted commas, loving me in their interactions. I, I choose to believe that it's almost like a faith that I've chosen improves my life. So when a when someone says, you know, calls me on something, I have chosen to hear that calling as something that they would have in my own self-interest. Now, now I know that that's deluded, right? I do know that, that we all actually operate out of our own stuff. Uh, but choosing to believe that we're all in this together makes my life better and makes, I think, makes me more open to, to being accountable. So they, they might have been a bit more cab sav or Shiraz. Answer <laughs> no, that people. was great. I think that's great. And I think that's great advice on life itself. And which brings to the last question, and that is knowing what you know now, what advice would you give yourself as that new grad X amount of years ago? Oh, wow. Wow, give myself. 
See, this um, is the question you said, don't prep me on. <laughs> so yeah, right. It's, it's a great question. I, I think uh, I would give the same advice that I reckon I gave myself then and have since I was old enough to have this sort of thing. That is just to yourself be true. Work out your values and make decisions according to your values and regularly revisit your values. And uh, we are, I don't think there are good people and bad people. I think they're, and I don't think, I don't think I'm more valuable than anyone else on the planet, but I don't think I'm less valuable than anyone else on the planet. And I guess my advice would be just that it's your life and be true to yourself and yeah, it sounds really trite when I hear no, it. No, 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 I, I don't think know it's great better advice. advice. I think it's yeah. great advice, and and it makes me think. God, I need to revisit my values, or at least have them. I feel like I should have them written down, like on my wall. So every time I wake up in the morning, that's what I see when I start my day, or maybe put them on the door before I leave. Yeah. You know, just to but keep those values high. So much wisdom in that. So every time, if a patient, a patient, a student starts a PhD with me, in the first six months of their PhD, we do the values exercise, and it's really hard, and it takes hours to identify. Okay, what are your core values? What do you really value? And you got to think about it. You can't rattle them off. You can't rattle off. Oh, honesty, integrity, generosity, hospitality, laughter. You think really like more than than. Getting enough food to eat, really? So these are hard things, mm -hmm. right? And uh, I coach people through that and, you know, mentoring is a significant part of my role now. But part of the deal is that when you've got it down to five, there's the max that people can get it down to, it goes next to the computer. Mm. Uh, and then when they have a really troubling issue, so in science, all of, all, I think all scientists who operate like our group does, it will have their trust betrayed by someone uh, and that issue will always come up. And how do I deal with this, Loz? And I say, well, go and get your values and let's work out how do you remain true to your values in dealing with this. Yeah, not, okay, you do this. Yeah, yeah. Great, so I think that great idea advice. Of the wall is great. We have our, our research group trademark, so it's almost like the values of the research group on the wall. And it's next to us whenever we have lunch, we look up and there it is. This is the yeah. things that, that we prioritize. Yeah, great advice. And and on that, from pain revolution to values, I think we've covered a lot here. So I really want to thank you very much for taking the time out, uh, your morning, my evening, um, to yeah, speak. Yeah. And um, more about the research group, people can go to bodyinmind.org. Correct. Um, and any other, does pain, uh, the pain revolution, I know they have a Facebook page, um, is it also Pain Revolution? Webpage? Yeah, we do. Com? We do have a. <laughs> yeah, we do have a website. <clears throat> uh, it's pretty rudimentary because we're shoestring. But uh, yeah, if you if you type in Pain Revolution. Yeah. Dot org. Dot org. You'll get Perfect. it. Perfect. Perfect. Thanks for having me, Karen. Yeah, anytime. Been, Thank you for right. coming on. Um, yeah, it's, it's been really pleasure. great. Um, no okay. worries. Thank you so much. And everybody, thanks so much for listening. Have a great week and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart. Thank you for listening. And please subscribe to the podcast at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media.